Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet Jack Grossman, co-author of Child of the Forest, a highly acclaimed nonfiction book about a young girl's fight for life following the Nazi invasion of her small town in eastern Poland. Child of the Forest won the 2019 Best Indie Book Award in the nonfiction category, an IBPA Benjamin Franklin Silver Award, and was a finalist in the International Book Awards. Jack was nominated as Author of the Year by the Artist Music Guild Heritage Awards and has spoken widely to students and adults about this story. One reader calls the book a must-read an incredibly riveting true story of a young girl's tenacity survives, saying, we can all learn something from Charlene Perlmuter Schiff. Rabbi Jack Moline says of the real-life protagonist's choice of love over revenge that if this child of the forest can open her heart, what is preventing the rest of us? We start the show with Jack reading from the opening chapter entitled Liquidation. Our last morning in the ghetto, Mama was gentle as she woke me. Musha, darling, time for us to go. She brushed a wisp of hair from my eyes. Her trembling fingers lingered against my skin. Come, you need to open your eyes, Nishomala. I breached the surface, but let myself drift back into the warmth of somnolent waters. My Nishomala, you must wake up. We have to go. The softness in her voice belied the strain on Mama's nerves. Please, Musha. I opened my eyes, and in one deep breath, the acidic odor of human rot burned my nostrils, eyes, and throat. Mama's face hung above me like a dimmed, emaciated moon, her eyes smudged by exhaustion. Musha, do you remember how to get to the Voitenkos? she whispered. Yes, Mama. They live in Skobelka. I know, Mama. When we cross the river, we walk across the field until we reach the road to Skobelka. I know, I know, Mama. You've told me so many times. Musha, please whisper. Her eyes wandered towards Mrs. Yoselovich, sitting on a bed of wood laths torn from a wall and supported by scavenged bricks. At 40, Mrs. Yoselovich, sallow, jaundiced face and withdrawn eyes made her look like an old woman. Mama continued, You must not forget. I remember their farm from before. Because if you lose me, you will have to find the Voitenkos on your own. Mama's eyes welled. I know, Mama, I'm 12, not a little girl. 
She took a deep breath and seemed to regain some strength. Promise me you will go to the Voitenkos. I sat up and looked into Mama's eyes. I promise. We have to go now. She steadied herself with one arm and stood. Her dress swayed as if draped on a wooden clothes hanger. An aching nausea roused itself in me. I held my arms against my belly to soothe the pain and hunger, but they were little comfort. Put your clothes on like I told you, Mama said as she wrapped a sweater around her body. Do you remember? Yes, Mama. And wear your winter shoes. It's August, Mama. They'll be too hot. Mama looked to Mrs. Yoselovich, who was taking an interest in our conversation. Mrs. Kukier looked up as well. She lay on her own bed of lath and brick, cradling her wheezing five-year-old daughter, Anya, to her withered bosom. Anya's body was bony and pitted, head shaved and flecked by abscesses that wept rancid yellow pus where lice had burrowed into her skin. Florid blooms of reddened skin covered the rest of her body. Her eyes were glassy and impassive, mouth fixed in a gaping oblong O. She was more cadaver than child. Author Jack Grossman is an award-winning advertising, marketing, and design expert with an entrepreneurial spirit who's been recognized for his many years of community service work. After he heard the harrowing tale of Charlene Perlmuter Schiff on a visit to the Holocaust Memorial in 2006, he says his life was forever altered. He came home and searched for a book about the story and couldn't find one, and he told his wife, I'm going to make sure Charlene's story is told to the world, whatever it takes. When Jack committed to this project in 2006, he didn't realize it would take 12 years to bring it to fruition. The journey was dotted with events such as the economic meltdown, a near-death stroke, and several other traumatic life experiences. He's a believer in the saying that there is a reason for everything, and he believes that in the end, this book is the culmination of aligning the perfect people at the perfect time. The award-winning Child of the Forest is based on the life story of a courageous young girl who bore witness to humanity's darkest time. When Jack faces challenges now, he simply thinks of Charlene, and it puts his life back into perspective. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte McMurk Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's, Happy uh, to be here. Yeah. So this is a uh, compelling true story of a young girl, only 12 years old, who survives against all odds. It's unbelievable. It's really miracle after miracle after miracle. Yeah, and so I alluded to it a little bit in the uh, in your bio here that I that I just went through, but tell us how you learned about this story and how it uh, how it affected you. Well, I had taken a uh, bus trip from Charlotte 
to Washington, D.C. to uh, visit the U.S. Holocaust Memorial uh, Museum. And on this trip, which was my third trip uh, in just a few short years, uh, was with our youngest daughter and a busload of children. I was one of the chaperones. And um, instead of going right into the museum and starting the tour, we were kind of escorted into a small banquet room where um, they had a podium set up. I sat in the front row like I usually do. A a, a very small statured lady walks in, a little elderly uh, lady, and started telling her experiences of the Holocaust. And I was literally in shock the whole time. And I started questioning, am I hearing her correctly? Are these true accounts? Is this a true story? It was just so compelling and so riveting that I I couldn't shake it. It stuck with me. And that person was Charlene Perlmuter Schiff? Absolutely. Which goes by Musha in the story? Yes. Her nickname in the book is uh, Musha, and uh, she's referred to as Nishomala, which is kind of a term of endearment that her mother called her a lot. Mm. And so you, you go up there and going to the museum is hard. You're, you're Jewish, correct? Yes. So uh, and you were going with some people from your your temple. Is yes. That right? And so uh, you were going to see the museum, and that's hard enough in and of itself. But then you sit down, you hear this firsthand account, right? Firsthand. Firsthand yeah. account. And did she talk about uh, all some of the events that are in the book here? Yes, not all of them because of the time restraints, but uh, enough of them to where it was. Um, you know, it was evident that this was an exceptional, an exceptional story that really needed to be told to the world. I mean, I was shaken. How, how does she go about telling it? Did she tell you sort of generally what happened first and then go back and talk about particular incidents? Or? Well, there was a, a, a series of events. I mean, we met in person on numerous occasions. I'm talking I, about at that first event. It, it, oh, at that first event? Yeah. Well, as she, um, as she told her stories and her experiences, she kind of... Uh, flowed from one into the other. They weren't necessarily in chronological order, but, um, uh, you know, you, you got the, the, the full experience of what she went through. Um, like you said, in first person, it is chilling. Yeah. Um, and so just to, we're going to be talking about this uh, story in this book throughout the podcast here today, but kind of give an overarching view of what we're going to be doing here. She, the book starts out, she's in the ghetto, Right in Poland. Yes. Right, and so her mother's trying to save her in this in this opening chapter. She's getting her ready to go out. I don't think she knew at the time what was about to happen, but the mother was trying to take her down to the river to get her across the river. Right. Yes. Yeah, and so the the arc of the story is that uh, very early on in this book and in her story, when they get down to the river, she looks up after sort of falling asleep or something, and her mother's gone. Yes. And so she's a 12-year-old. She's in the river. There are Nazis on the bank that are shooting people, trying to get down to the river, and she has to make a decision. And so she tries to swim across the river. And for the next how many – how long was she? Almost two years. Two years she's wandering through the forest, summer, winter, fall. Brutal, brutal winters. Brutal winters, yeah. yeah. And getting turned away right and left and and chased and – yeah, so so the question is, had she? I mean, were you amazed at how she did this? I mean, has she survived? Absolutely. I mean, um, I'm not embarrassed to say, but I was in Boy Scouts and was, uh, you know, uh, very privy to you know survival camping trips and below zero campouts and 
learning how to heat rocks and put them in your tent and cooking on rocks and all of that. I had some knowledge of survival techniques. I don't think I would have lasted two days, you know, in this story, uh, considering the elements and what she faced. Mm. Yeah, we're going to go through the story in a little bit, but before we get there, um, so you you came back home. You told your wife you, you know, you, you got to do something. You got to help tell the. So you reach out to Charlene and y'all meet. Yes. Right. Where'd you meet? We met at a restaurant in Washington, D.C. Her husband, um, his real name was Edwin, but uh, he went by Ed, and Charlene and I met. And it was just so cordial and warm and friendly, and uh, we really became very close friends instantly. And we we struck a deal over a handshake. I said, you know, how would you feel about me, you know, putting this into film, your story into film and into book form? And she said that she would be honored, and she and Ed, you know, looked at each other and said, let's do this, and um, that's where it all began. Why do you think, so you're, you're in advertising, you're not out there looking for movie scripts or, or book ideas. How, how did her story fall through the cracks and not gain the attention of someone, you think? I don't know. I mean, there's so many Holocaust survivor stories, and in my opinion, they're all uh, equal in the sense they all need to be told, they all need to be heard, they're all important but hers really stuck out to me because it wasn't concentration camp based. It wasn't um, Schindler's List. It was a young girl, 12 years old, against all odds. And um, I think we as humans tend to root for the underdog. And boy, if there was ever an underdog, it was Charlene in the forest for uh, for two years and, and facing so many challenges and and, and, you know, coming so close to death on so many occasions, it's just really, um, mm. like she said, death was always one step behind me. And so you have this first meeting, you have a handshake deal, um, and you, you're going out with the idea that you're going to get some investors and because you're an average, we're going to do a movie right, right. right off the bat. And so, but instead, things happened in your life and that got derailed and one of the things that happened was that in 2010, you had a major stroke. Yes, right? a brainstem stroke. I'm lucky to be here. I was totally paralyzed on my left side to the point where I couldn't wiggle a finger or a toe. And I had to learn how to walk again and do many things that we all take for granted on a daily basis. Um, I had to learn, basically, for almost a year and a half. Uh, you know, it became survival mode. And obviously, Child of the Forest took the back seat to that. Yeah, I, I realize it, that putting it out took a back seat but and, and a stroke I haven't had a stroke and I imagine though that it's a very difficult thing both physically and emotionally to go through uh, did you draw on any of what you had learned about her experience and dealing with your own dark places from this stroke you know I believe that I did and I think since I met her and since I first heard her stories at the museum and then many of her stories after that in uh, in person, in videotaped interviews, and in phone interviews. And, um, you know, I, I got to say that I just think of Charlene uh, on a daily basis, but also when I'm facing any challenge, I just, you know, shake my head and say, Jack, this is nothing. Mm -hmm. Look at what she went through as a young child. I mean, you know, I can get through this. I can get through whatever it is that I'm facing and really look up to her as a role model. Now, you told me as we were preparing for this show that one of the, your motivations for getting the story out um, is the fact that uh, anti-Semitism has not gone away in this world, and you've experienced that personally. 
absolutely in every city that I've lived in. Uh, in what in what way? Um, to the point of uh, desecration of uh, our places of worship, temple, synagogues, graffiti. Um, in one case, a small Holocaust memorial on site. Um, you know, being destroyed like with sledgehammers or just throwing things around and breaking some of the uh, the pieces of the memorial. Um, hate literature. Uh, that was strewn all over the the property of one synagogue that was in Indiana, and um, you know that's scary growing up with that. And you know what? We're on on a meteoric rise with anti-Semitism here. I don't know that it ever really went away, but is certainly at the forefront now. Um, not just in Europe, not just the desecration of Jewish cemeteries and Jewish businesses and. Uh, there's a lot going on right now. If you if you really want to get into it, you can find the information, and it's scary. So, you know, there are those extreme uh, far-right groups that will say ridiculous things like, well, the Holocaust didn't happen and so forth and so on. So, And, and might look at this story and say, well, there's no possible way, you know, this 12-year-old girl could have survived under these circumstances. What What did you do? to kind of assure yourself as to the authenticity of this particular That's story? That's a great question yeah. because we have seen um, in recent times where uh, there was an author on a major uh, daily talk show program that uh, fabricated an entire story and sold a gazillion copies and then it came out that wasn't a true, true right. story. Um, it was, uh, you know, authenticated, uh, to use that word, uh, by the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, and Charlene and Ed were very involved with the museum. Um, you know, so I felt very comfortable with the source of the material uh, and all the interviews and some of the supporting resources. Um, you know, and the museum was putting this out there on their website, and uh, it really happened. And, you know, uh, I'll tell you, I've spoken to over 3,000, maybe 3,500 people now in, in uh, book discussions and readings, and I've yet to have that one person say it never happened, but I'm yeah. looking forward to that day because, <laughs> um, you know, I won't hold back. <laughs> right, that's good. So, all right, um, let's talk about the structure of the book a second because as I'm reading it, it's told in the first person. Um, Musha is very early in the book set out on her own. And we're, we're going to read a scene in just a second as to what happens after she crosses the river and gets to this family that her mother so wanted her to get to and what happens when she gets there. But throughout this uh, book, this journey, you're putting in some italicized, it, it could be thoughts, on the other hand, it could be conversation. Who is she speaking to in those circumstances? Well, she's having a direct conversation with her mother, even though not knowing if her mother is alive yep. um, or the whereabouts of her mother. Um, and that, that river scene is the pivotal scene, uh, certainly in the book, and it will be also in the movie because that's where it really all uh, it all starts. But you, I think you told me that, that Charlene felt like without her mother with her, so to speak, yes. in those conversations, she wouldn't have made it, that she was, those conversations kept her going. Without a doubt. Yeah. There is no question about that, and Charlene made that very, very clear. And I think you can you can get that from the book as well. That um, you know the love of her mother, not that she didn't love her sister equally or her father, but just the way the circumstances played out and the scene at the river. That um, 
it was those conversations that she had uh, that kept her going on a daily basis. All right, Jack, we've got a read here um, from the chapter called The Haystack. She gets across the river. She's headed to this farm that her mother has told her several times over. <laughs> this is where she needs to go if she gets in trouble. And uh, the, the adults are arguing about whether to take her in. They let her stay in the barn, I think, that night. But One the, night. One yeah. night, but then she's got to go. She's got to get out. And they don't want to be seen as having helped her, aided her, put her up or anything. And there's a scene here between the, the, the father and the mother, not her father and mother, but the, the two adults who live there who have their own children. The farmers. The yes. farmers. And uh, they're arguing with each other as she's standing there after the, after the woman has just given her food, right? Yes, correct. Now, okay. they were, they were um, you know, had negotiated her mother a deal to... Uh, have her go there for safekeeping. So they kind of reneged on the deal. Right. Okay. So whenever you're ready. Okay. The Nazis, everyone, everyone is hunting for Jews. And you gave her food from our house? Yes. Do you know what they did to the Babenkos? Her body stiffened. Yes. They shot his children and wife in front of him and then hung him from his barn and left their bodies to rot. She turned her face to his. I don't want her here, but God is watching. Mr. Voitenko glared at his wife for a moment, then walked toward the barn muttering, God is watching like hell. The door slid open hard, and I crawled back to my coat and packed the two bundles into its sleeves. I brought Mama's blouse to my nose and inhaled her deeply, then tied the blouse to my waist. I don't care if your father was Simcha Perlmutter. Get the hell out or I will turn you in. I folded the coat so the worn outline of the Star of David would not be too visible, threw it over my shoulder, and climbed down the ladder. Mr. Voitenko stood in the doorway, the dirt barnyard behind him. His dirty tunic was tucked into his wool pants held up by suspenders and a belt. A knife jutted from his waistband. His arms were at his side, his legs wide, and his face tired and dark. I wanted to beg him to let me stay just a little longer, to say how I knew Mama would be along soon, and we would leave together. I wanted to tell him to give back my father's watch. I wanted to tell him he was an ugly and dishonest man. Tears burned around my eyes, but I wouldn't let Mr. Voitenko see my fear. As I passed him, I stopped and turned my eyes to the fob of Papa's watch hanging from his pocket. I'll be back for my father's watch. You'll be dead. Jack, you deal with um, the looting in this book as well. There's a scene, I think, in the book where they come back. Uh, her father, uh, Charlene's father, was an academic. He loved books. He had a nice, almost a rare book library. And the Nazis came back and uh, took all the books uh, yes. out of the house while they were while they were there. This scene where she's turned away by the adults, I mean, it really struck me. You hear about the horrors, but uh, this is a 12-year-old girl, you know, and, and these people were unwilling to aid in any way whatsoever. Well, they were scared. I mean, I'm not saying 
that it's right or wrong, but had they been caught, they would have been instantly killed as well. So that's what the, the fear that drove them was, you know, put into them by the Nazis. You had a couple of... Um, so before we get to that, um, just something about the territory that we're in. Could you describe that area uh, of the country um, and what she was sort of would have been experiencing. Um, she's crossed a river. How wide is this river that she crosses? Uh, it's really not that wide. Okay. Um, but is it? And it's crazy because when she went back after the fact, uh, the river wasn't there, so it got redirected or something. Okay. But it wasn't uh, uh, turbulent or, or that wide. Um, and the terrain was similar pretty much to like the Carolinas, except for, you know, the, the rolling hills. It was pretty much flat and it was a lot of uh deciduous non-deciduous trees a lot of beach a lot of pine um you know and it was uh thick in many many places where the forest was extremely uh dense and there were areas where it opened up more into like fields and how cold did it get in the winter it got really cold bitter cold yeah Mm -hmm. more so than where we are here in north carolina and what was she wearing well she had uh tattered clothing that um you know, depending on what where you are in the story, you know, that she started out with or that she acquired along the way, um, but never the proper clothing that you would typically, uh, you know, wear in that environment. So she was always cold in the winter. All right, let's talk about the family. And then you've got a little scene here. She, she has some flashbacks. So you tell the story linearly, but then as she's in the forest, she's thinking back to events. And that's how we learn how the father disappears and how the sister disappears but her family was her mother her father she had a sister yes chia chia and the sister was a little bit older yes and she had been taken away to work and and hadn't come back and the mother was trying to get musha across the river and the father had already been taken at that point right yes actually chia was um phase one of their escape plan and she was going to go to a different farm because they couldn't uh, find one farmer to take all three of them. So that that was the initial plan that uh, Chia would go to uh, the Voitankos and then Charlene and her mother uh, would go to another farm. But uh, that didn't play out that way because her sister, they had no way of knowing if she made it there alive or not. And we don't really know until the very end of the, of the book. Mm-hmm. All right, Jack, we've got to read here now. This, this is a flashback. It also gives some context as to the time period, uh, what's going on here. I don't think it takes a whole lot of setup, so if whenever you're ready. Okay, this is from the chapter, The Haystack. On June 21, 1941, Hitler broke his agreement with Stalin and attacked Russia. This included the eastern slice of Poland the Russians occupied after the start of the war in 1939 as part of their pact with Hitler. On June 23, the Russians pulled out of Horahov. A few bombs dropped close enough for us to hear the explosions as we hid in our home, and then the Germans occupied our small city. Some stayed, but most passed through in an immense column of tanks, trucks, horse-drawn supply wagons, and an endless river of German soldiers, all of them chasing the Russian army to the east. For days we lived with the resonant rumble of trucks and tanks and other large machines, and in our house there was no power, no phone. We were too scared to walk out the door, 
too scared even to peer from behind our closed drapes into the street. There was only confusion and fear and terrifying mechanical moan of Nazi army as it passed. It was a nightmare, but of course, it wasn't the real nightmare. We were ordered to give the Nazis our gold, silver, jewelry, carpets, radios, anything with any material value whatsoever. Then on June 29, Papa heard a shout and looked out a front window into the street. They're coming, he said, as he passed Mama. He walked out the living room through the kitchen. The front door burst open and three Ukrainian militia soldiers in black uniforms carrying machine guns ran into the house. A tall, lean German officer with a dimpled chin and a pistol in one hand followed them in. He stepped up to Mama. We're looking for Simcha Perlmutter. Is he here? I felt my body withdraw into itself as the officer yelled at Mama. I wanted to run into the kitchen, out the door, and into the garden and grab Papa's hand and show him all my hiding spots, the places he and Mama could never find me, but I was too scared. I stepped back away from Mama and the German and wished for someone to come save us to tell these people to stop. I don't know, she said. Then a yell from the kitchen door in Ukrainian, we have him. The officer glared at Mama, his fingers tightened around the grip of his pistol, and his pointer finger tapped the side of the trigger, but he turned and walked toward the kitchen. Mama and I rushed to the living room door, and Chia watched from the stairs as the soldiers hauled Papa past us. Two of them held either arm, the third walked behind him, with his gun pointed at Papa's back. "'May I say goodbye to my family?' he asked. The officer waved for the soldiers to take Papa into the street. So, Jack, she she has all this... Uh, I mean, the, the physical difficulties for surviving out in, out in the wild, but she's also got all this uh, emotional trauma as well. She's lost her mother. She remembers they took her father. She doesn't know what happened to her sister. Um, she doesn't know if she does survive, whether or not there's going to be anyone left, you know, in her family to, to be with. Right? True. Yes. And when she goes to bed at night, the only thing she knows to do is to talk to her mother. Right. Yes. What ended up happening to her father? Well, her father, the, the Nazis didn't like what they called the intellects, you know, the smart people. Um, and as a professor, you know, of philosophy in Lvov, he was obviously considered an intellectual individual. And he was actually hauled away into the forest and um, forced with uh, many other intellects to dig a large grave. And they were consequently shot in the back of the head and buried in the, the mass grave. And she didn't learn that until... Until she went back after the war. Yeah. yeah. And did she ever find out what happened to her mother? No, and there's no really, uh, no way to find out or to know exactly what happened. But she and I talked about that quite a bit extensively. And um, I think we both believed that she had drowned and then floated down the river because none of the other uh, possible scenarios make any sense. Why would mm -hmm. she turn herself in? Why would she endanger Charlene? Why would she leave her to go on this journey alone? So 
really the only thing that that would seem to make sense is that she drowned and then floated down the river. Yeah, and that opening scene, they're sort of hiding in some some reeds or brush or something in the water, and her mother's trying to protect her from view because what's going on is sort of target practice for the Germans up on the hill shooting people that are trying to cross. With fully automatic machine guns. Right. Just blaring into the bulrushes. Somehow they weren't able to see them or they were lucky and didn't get, get hit by the bullets. Exactly. And then her sister... Did she ever find out what happened to her sister? Yes, at the same time, Mom, that she found out about her father, um, she had found out that her sister was brutally murdered and beaten and paraded down the streets of Hudahuv naked. Yeah, so we're going to talk about the aftermath, too, a little bit in, in this story at the end, some of her survivor's guilt and so forth. When we come back, we're going to actually go into the forest. Uh, we're going to have a few readings about what happened to young Musha when she was out there as a 12-year-old trying to survive in this impossible terrain, some of the people she met who befriended her, some who tried to uh, actually take her as bounty. Uh, We're going to have the Writing Life segment, and then we've got a final read and some reflections, so please stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'm here with Ginger Hendricks. She's the executive director of Bookmarks and the Heart of Winston-Salem. Ginger, how you doing? Doing great. Yeah, and we are here. The background noise you hear is uh, people who are excited about being at your annual event in February, which is called... Movable Feast. And you've got how many people here today? About 200 people here. Yeah. We have 21 authors yeah. that are talking about their books. Moving around table to table. Table to table, kind of yeah. like speed dating. Yeah, and then they come out <laughs> so energized they're going to buy the books, right? We yeah. hope so, absolutely. But yeah. really the, the, the hope of this is to get ideas for your book club, to get ideas for what you want to read next. So you do walk away with three right. or four new ideas. Well, I had a good time. I interviewed six of the authors who appeared today. I did it in your store. That's going to be in my Under the Covers episodes and some really, really good writing and books and everything. And you got a wide variety here, right? Absolutely. We always Everything from poetry to dystopian, right? Yeah, and even a little romance in (laughs) there. (laughs) You got to have a little romance in there, right? Absolutely. So tell me about Bookmarks, uh, history of it. Bookmarks is a literary arts nonprofit. We started out in 2004, and we really started out as a festival, a festival that brought in anywhere from 35 to 60 authors. Mm -hmm. They came together for a day, and Mm -hmm. we had concurrent events throughout the day where you got to hear every type of author that was possible. That's great. And you got space for the authors to hold events there? We do. So with time, we moved into this new space that's on 4th Street and so it's a bookstore and so we have events there about 15 to 20 a month and we can hold about 100 people for those. Yeah, and you don't own the store next door, but it's got coffee, right? It's got coffee. Footnote it, is right next door. <laughs> they, they, they borrowed that name, right? Yeah. I love that yeah. they chose that name. That's great. Well, um, it, you're doing great work in the community and uh, it's just a, such a welcoming space, right? It yeah. is. We want yeah. it to be that. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, for a book lover. Yeah. For a book lover. For so, anyone that's interested, it's always such a great place to show people that maybe you don't consider themselves to be yeah. book lovers or readers even that there's always a book that we can find that will be the perfect fit, so no matter I, what your interest. So if I'm in Winston-Salem and I'm looking for a book, where where should I go? You yeah. should go to Bookmarks, yeah, 634 right. West 4th Street. Right. Thanks, Ginger. Thank you. Hey, listeners, I'm back uh, with uh, Jack Grossman. He's the co-author of Child of the Forest, uh, an award-winning account based on the life story of Charlene Perlmuter Schiff. And before the break, we were talking about what led up to the journey that she took, this two-year um, sort of survival effort in the in the woods. But let's let's go to the woods now for a minute, Jack. Uh, you, you've talked about this rolling terrain, the woods, how cold it was. Um, you've got a read here that you're going to do that starts with 
with the cold. Uh, anything you'll say about that before we set it? Also, talks about what she had to eat. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, just when I, I read to the middle school students, which is over fifteen hundred so far, the uh, the thing that they're most curious about is what did she eat? How did she survive? You know, so just point that out. All right, whenever you're ready. Okay, this is the chapter from the forest nymph. With the cold, foraging in the forest was harder. Bugs were rare, and acorns and beech nuts that had fallen in abundance during the fall lay rotten on the wet earth, though I ate them when I could. Hunger sometimes impelled me to put something, anything, into my mouth to chew on. Gnawing on bark and twigs helped, but neither was enough to stop the cramps when they came. One day, after eating nothing but bark... I'd run out of potatoes two days before. I found owl dung, furry from the rodents it had eaten, and ate it. It was disgusting, but the pain subsided a little, and this, with fox dung, became my last choice option. And I walked and walked day after day until I entered an immense forest. As I left the field of frozen stubble I'd crossed in the dark, it was as if the air pressure had changed. The forest closed around me. Its atmosphere and quiet was unsettling. I dug a little grave and, covered by the boughs of few pine trees, slept through the day. At night, I wandered farther into the forest and stopped when I found another pine stand beneath which I could dig another little grave. Morning came, and my eyes opened to three deer pulling at the little buds at the ends of the pine branches. Their eyes were nervous, and they ate with a deep sense of caution. When I sat up, they darted away. I tried to eat one of the little buds, but the flavor was sharp, and it dried my mouth. For two days, I walked without any sign of a break to this forest. No villages or farmhouses, just kilometer after kilometer of hardwoods and occasional stands of pine. Nuts were scarce, as was any other food. I watched other animals to see what they ate, but the cold limited their number, and most, squirrels, foxes, every so often and rabbits, ran the moment we saw each other. It snowed one night, a dry, fluffy snow that hung in the trees and covered the ground. The air was bitter cold the next morning, and it took all my will to get my muscles to cooperate. Excited birds chirped, and my eyes followed the noise to a tall, leafless bush. Hanging from its limbs were bright red, withered bunches of berries. Some were covered by caps of bright white snow. Little blackbirds chirped as each landed on a branch, plucked a berry, then flew to another perch to eat it. The berries were sweet at first, but turned sour with a sharp aftertaste. I waited a moment to see what would happen. My cramps eased, so I ate more and put some in one of my bundles and kept walking. A few hours later, a deep, sharp cramp, different from those caused by hunger, started in my belly. I thought to walk through it, but within a few minutes, the cramp was too painful to walk. So, Jack, I remember when I was reading this section of the book, I, I was thinking about, you know, what she was eating. Um, she was reading, eating owl dung, uh, fox dung, uh, whatever pretty much she could put in her mouth to try to 
survive. At some point, she tried to chew on bark and whatever was there. But I suppose these berries must have been something that was poisonous or yeah, toxic to some degree. Yeah, yeah. and that and that got to her. But the other thing about this is I noticed that she was intelligent too. She tried to watch what the other animals ate to see, you know, how they might survive in, in such a desolate environment. Uh, and you used an image you talked about her digging another little grave. I, I knew what you were talking about. She would dig, you know, a space in the ground to get her body heat down in there to try to cover up. But the idea of it being a grave, yeah, would she wake up? Would she move She forward? referred to those pits in the ground as her little graves. That's what she did. Throughout. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, um, so she's having a tough time in the forest. She's doing the best she can. It's really cold. There's one scene in the book, and we're not going to uh, – one chapter in the book, we're not going to get to it, but we're going to talk about it just saying because she befriended some young girl who made it sound like she would offer her shelter and care, and but then she was suspicious and she didn't bring all of her belongings and she kind of stood off to the side and watched and that person showed up with a man the next morning with a gun and was upset with the person because they weren't there. They were going to turn them in, shoot them, get the bounty. Yes. Yeah. And it was a meager bounty. It's not like it was a lot of money. Yeah. And so she had to watch for that as she's going through it. And she ends up at this part of the book uh, pretty much, um, I mean, it's snowing, it's cold. She's been through a lot already. I'm not sure she's already been through her first winter or not when she meets Paranka. Is that right? Yes, Paranka. Paranka. And she talked to you about Paranka. Yes. What, what does she say about her? Well... Paranka was a glimmer of hope, that's for sure. And uh, the first time that she had warm food um, in a long time and uh, actually some boots and some things that Paranka, you know, uh, befriended her. Um, and, uh, you know, the uh, the way that that chapter ends and the way that, you know, Paranka dies and at the hands of uh, a couple of, uh, you know, police that um, just kind of roll up to the house and knock on the door demanding to see her papers, you know, it gives the impression that maybe Paranka was a Jew in hiding. Mm. And once again, there's no way to confirm that, but that's, I think Charlene and I both felt that that was the case there as well after we talked about it quite a bit. So to set this little read up, which is a short one, you you find her on the edge of the forest. She sees this uh, little house, a little barn, and she's tried to hide in some barns along the way, but she goes and she gets in the loft and she's hiding, um, and this young girl finds her, right? Yes. And then starts sneaking food out to her to try to take care of her. You know, she didn't have anyone really to speak to for a year and a half, and she comes across this, which might have given her as much strength as anything else. So if, if you could pick it up with that scene, this is an interaction between these two young girls. Yes, and this is from the chapter Paranka. The next morning, the work continued, as did the frequent calls for Paranka to do this or that. Later that night, she came with her pail, and we talked as I ate, but we didn't share stories of our families. I asked her where the food came from, with the Germans taking so much, and she said that people had learned to hide food in the woods, never in their homes. The Germans or the police would shoot us if they knew we had anything. On following nights, we talked about our friends, our schools, and homes. She asked questions about my time in the woods. 
and I asked about the farm. We also shared our dreams for the lives we would lead once this horrible war was over, but I couldn't imagine a time when the killing would stop or the Germans and police would no longer hunt me. Death, as always, hovered, waiting for me to emerge into the light. After a few days, I'd learned to tell time by the different sounds each chore made. Feeding chickens had its own song, as did the clinking and clanging of the man and boy working on this or that machine. The cows lowed, and the chickens clucked in their roosts. Paranka shoveled chicken and cow manure, then laid the new bedding. She made sure she was the one to gather fresh straw for bedding, though no one else seemed interested in the task. And then they went inside, and smoke poured from the chimney. At night, after Paranka left and the loft was quiet and the night silent, I lay in the straw and smiled. Rather than worry about what was to be, I thought about what is. I am safe tonight and will be safe tomorrow. That's enough for now. And I let my worries spread their wings and fly away into the night. And so she she has this help, this aid from this young girl, and at the end of this chapter, which you just you talked about just a moment ago, the police come, they knock, they're searching, and then basically Musha hears the shots ring out, and they shoot her young shoot friend. her point blank right in the front of the house. Yeah, and at that point she decides she's got to move on. She's got to yeah get out of there and try to make it. But then things kind of get worse from there. She comes ill she's in the forest and uh, all right so we're gonna not give it all away <laughs> we do know unlike some books we do know she survived yes <laughs> which is a great True. thing yeah it's a great thing let's talk about the writing life for just a minute um you were uh i, I, I talked about the fact that you're a co-author um tell us about uh about who else helped you with this book yeah james buchanan a uh, great guy from new hampshire uh, was introduced to him by email in um think 2016 so as you had mentioned you know I met Charlene in 2006 so now 10 years has gone by and I've really at during that time period focused on the film and you know we had the meltdown the economic meltdown of 2008 my near-death stroke in 2010 Charlene's passing in 2013 and it was uh very challenging so um I realized so, so that. Back, back up just a yeah. second. So she died in 2013? Yes. So so you, you hadn't even started writing the book at that point? You were just still gathering information? Correct. Right? We were still, you know, right. thinking film at that point. Okay. Yeah. Um, had you been, um, how many times did you meet with her? Or did you talk by um, phone as well? Or? I brought her uh, to Charlotte and Mooresville three or four times, and I think I went to Alexandria in Washington, D.C., quite a few times, maybe mm-hmm. eight, nine, ten times to go up there. And then we spoke on the phone every couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. So, so it was constant contact with her. So how, the, the, the working with another author, talk about that process. How did it work? How, how did y'all? Well, my background, as you got into a little earlier with the advertising uh, agency type stuff, I had an award-winning ad agency. I've written a ton of ad copy. I've published a magazine, worked for a couple of small newspapers and have always had my hand in writing, but I never really set out to uh, specifically write a book until I heard her story. And the way that I talk about that is, what would you do if you discovered the diary of Anne Frank? I mean, would you just let it sit or would you 
do whatever you could in your power to tell that story and share that story with the world. So that's kind of how I felt when I first heard her speak at the museum. And um, I had not written a book before, and, and James provided uh, a great resource and partner for me on the project, um, as well as some very intense research. I mean, I had done a lot of research for about 10 years leading up to uh, being introduced to him. And then he dug really a lot deeper in geography and, uh, you know, some of the, um, uh, you know, the, the foliage and different things that uh, were, were technical in, in a sense and the locations and the map. Um, so that was, uh, that was a big help. Mm-hmm. And then we, we got into a flow and, uh, and we worked through it and it took about two years. So, I'm curious, why didn't Charlene write her story? I think she would have had she lived longer. I think that she would have. Well, um, she lived to be held. Yeah, well, she passed at 83, um, and she um, would have been 90 years old last December. Had she thought had, had she thought about writing a book? Had y'all talked about that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that she was just kind of putting some ideas together for it. Mm-hmm. Um and then, uh, you know, that didn't work out. So so you're, you're collecting all this information. You probably carried some notebooks around or laptop. Or oh, had yeah. Some, had something where you're recording. It's one thing, though, to record the events uh, when you're telling a story like this. But to get at the emotions and the thoughts, you know, you, you really – I'm so sure she had to open up to you and share with you, try to recall – what yeah. happened during that time? And a lot of in-depth discussions about the different scenes um, and how they affected her emotionally. Did you record any of your interviews with her? Oh, we do have some on, yeah, on tape. Okay. We do. Did that help you in the writing process? Um, it did. All of the support material really did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you plan to write again? Um, yeah, it's funny. I get asked that a lot. <laughs> right now, my focus is back to the movie. Okay. Um, but after that, I actually might write a book about fundraising because that's another big part of my life and have raised in excess of uh, or been responsible for raising in excess of $18 million in cash and in kind for nonprofits. And I get hit up on a weekly basis. Hey, can you help this nonprofit? Mm-hmm. Can you help that nonprofit? And I've done what I can and have really... Um, devoted a lot of my life to the nonprofit sector. So I think if I write a book, I won't get as many phone calls. So we talked a little bit about the structure, but how did you decide, because you had to make some decisions about how to tell this story, right? Um, how, did you and your co-author collaborate and try to figure out, okay, did you, we storyboard it, we're going to figure out how to tell it, we're going to have these flashbacks uh, to the mo- and we, yeah, have these and we ca- had so much of the material from Charlene, and it was really about putting it in order and developing the writing style and going with the first person narrative, and um, you know, and then it, it got into a flow. Mm-hmm. And what were the most difficult scenes for you to write? Um, well, for me, you know, having become a very, very dear friend of hers, and actually my family as well, our three daughters and my wife. Um, you know, developed a relationship with her. It was all emotional. I mean, how could you pick out one one right. of those chapters and say it was more so than the other? It was really, um, you know, it just is so gripping. And it, to me, I just still, I shake my head uh, that she survived. It's just unbelievable. Was it draining to write it? I mean, do you feel, did it, did it take a lot of your energy? Yeah, I think so to a certain degree. Yeah. I think so. But uh, emotional gl- overload. You're glad you did it? Absolutely. So how Absolutely. has how has writing down her story uh, affected your own life? Well, I think about her every single day, and uh, 
it's kind of funny when I talk to the schools and through all my nonprofit work, I've worked with a lot of celebrities. So I talk about role models. I talk about bullying and different things so that the students can uh, relate to it. Uh, the interesting thing is they're the same age she was. You know, the middle schoolers are 12, 13, and 14. So they have a different perspective. And at first I thought they would be too young. But um, but no, they got it and the teachers wanted them to read. And I've had zero zero negative blowback on that from anybody everybody's loved it. So, um, you know, I talked about, uh, you know, role models and, and with the kids and, you know, so much of that, um, well, I don't want to, I don't want to point fingers or anything, but be, be selective in who you choose as a role model. So, you know, I talked about all the celebrities I've met in my life and, you know, these middle schoolers, I'm, I'm, you know, blurting out names, Rod Stewart, uh, you know, um, Evander Holyfield, uh, Charlie Daniels, and I'm just going on and on. And they're shaking their heads. They don't know a single one of those people. And I'm realizing, okay, I am getting old. Yeah, you um, are. You are. I was going to say you're dating yourself. There. I dated myself, absolutely. But uh, um, but I said, you know, Charlene is my role model. She's my hero. If I if I get out and my car's got frost on the windshield and I've got to pull out a credit card and and you know start chipping away at it and my fingers are cold and I got, you know, shavings on my hands and I'm going to be a few minutes late for a meeting. I didn't plan on it or whatever. I just stop and I just stop and I shake my head and I go, Jack, get over this. This is nothing. And I think we all tend to do that. We all get so wound up and so stressed over the littlest things when, you know, here you've got a young girl, what she went through, no human being, let alone a child, should have to bear witness to the things that she saw and experienced the, th- the things that she did. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's affected me deeply. Yeah, and they say that, you know, unless you are really committed to or obsessed with a topic, you shouldn't write about it. Obviously, you became obs- obsessed with helping to tell the story, right? Absolutely, and I made a promise to her. Made a promise, and you kept her promise. So we got a, just a couple of short reads left here. Uh, we're going to talk about the... Uh, afterward of the book, we're not really giving anything away too much because we've talked about the fact that uh, she's no longer living. And But one of the things that uh, she talked about was survivor's guilt. So, Jack, I'd like you just to read this little a couple of paragraphs from the afterward here, if you would, and then we'll talk about it. In a later interview, Charlene described how she'd found a greater sense of peace. I felt enormous guilt for surviving. Why me? A nobody like me when people who had so much to contribute to humankind were just blown away like flies. Why me? So that's why I feel very strongly that I must do what I can in my own small way. I have to contribute what I can, and this is my contribution. I often say I'm very proud to be who I am. I wouldn't change it for the world. I'm proud of being a Jew. And I'm proud of having survived, but until recently I had enormous guilt. Now I am still imprisoned by my memories, but I don't feel guilty anymore. On August 15, 2008, Charlene's beloved husband, Ed, passed away. His body was laid to rest in Arlington National Cemetery. On January 19, 2013, Charlene passed away. She is interred next to Ed in Arlington National Cemetery. She had this feeling that why her, right? Why me? Why, why, 
Why, why should I survive and not, not others? And you know what I would tell her every time she asked me, why did I live? So we can tell your story to the world. Mm. I mean, that's got to be it. What else could there be? Right. You know, it's a very important and timely message and a powerful story. And like I said before, all Holocaust survivor stories are important. I think a lot of people can relate to hers um, and can root for the underdog and, and the descriptive manner that the book is written in. I've had so many reviews. I'm talking dozens and dozens of reviews where the people felt like they were in the woods with her. Um, yeah, so. it, it does have that that quality to it. And she does say, um, despite her survivor's guilt until recently, that uh, that she's very proud of who she is, very proud to be a Jew. And I'm, I'm sensing that maybe you were proud beforehand to be a Jew, but having met her and done this, you're even more proud of that? Yes. Of that? I would yeah. say that's a true statement. I've yeah. always been proud to be a Jew, and yeah. um, certainly, uh, you know, my conversations with Charlene and our friendship and her story uh, have have certainly strengthened that. And one thing I've learned is that, you know, a lot of people think uh, Jew and they think religion, but Jew is not just a religion. I mean, that that's a people. That's a, that's a culture, right? It's, it's so more, many it's, things. It's more than just uh, yeah. the religion itself. And so you're proud of that heritage. You're proud of what she did. You're proud of the fact that you're able to help her tell that story. And I do believe that um, she's looking down and smiling because um, there have been some things that have happened that have been very serendipitous and certainly, uh, you know, unexplainable in a sense. Um, I believe that things happen for a reason and like I said and you mentioned earlier on about uh, all of this culminating to where we are today and um, I'm confident that we will have the film funded in the near term and that we will begin production sometime in 2020 I just can't tell you when yeah and you're you're trying to raise a lot of money to do that right a decent amount yeah yeah it, it takes a lot to put a put a film together yeah and you want to do this story right I mean this you know is definitely something that uh you know, needs to be done properly, and there's some challenges, um, you know, uh, in terms of direction and production and the conversations with her mother. There are some technical things that need to be worked out and figured out. So um, we definitely want to do it justice. So we talk about themes in books, and uh, I think you and I talked about this, but, you, you know, there's there's a theme, I think, that runs through this book that, that without this— she could not have survived. And what is it? Well, love and hope, you know, in her mother. I think her mother is what really drove her to survive mm-hmm. and the possibility that she was alive. And I think with that, uh, I'd like to ask you if you would to read the epigraph from the front of the book. Actually ties in well to the theme you were just talking about. So this is Estelle Laughlin, Holocaust survivor and personal friend of Musha Perlmuter. Hope is a fiction. It's a dream that tomorrow will be different or some miracle will happen to save you. It's not sufficient. It's not enough to keep you alive in the ghetto, the camps. When a person is drowning and they reach for air, it's not hope that propels that fight. The drive to live is what pushes us toward life, but it's stronger in some and can make the difference between life and death. Why stronger in some? 
it's always love. Love is what allows us to keep our humanity and know that someone needs us to survive. And that's what she carried with her through the forest, right? Yep, that's it. I mean, unbelievable. Her mother's love. Uh, all right, listen, listeners, we, uh, we've got information in the show notes, uh, book cover, uh, links uh, to Jack, information about him and more about the book. Uh, you can check that out at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Jack, uh, I want to commend you for um, you know, continuing to push through all of the, <laughs> the adversity that you had to, to bring this uh, story to life in the form of this book. And uh, all the best to you in getting this movie out and want to thank you for being on the show. I appreciate it. Can I add one thing sure thing. Um, for your listening audience? Um, I can offer a discount for the highest quality book available, either paperback or hardcover um, at my website, jackgrossman.com. If they put in a coupon code, Fruma, F-R-U-M-A, which was her mother, Fruma, okay. uh, they will receive a 20% discount. Okay, great. All right, well, people like, like deals, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, Jack, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.